Hi there, listener. It's Matthew. You've come looking for an episode of the Children's Book Podcast, and you've found it. Hooray! But you're probably wondering why the name of the podcast has changed. After eight years of doing the Children's Book Podcast, I began a new career as head of podcasts at A Kid's Company About, where I now oversee a podcast network dedicated to producing original content that talks up to kids, centers the things going on in their world, and engages and challenges how they see the world and themselves. All of the episodes of the Children's Book Podcast are still here, but now, if you're subscribed, you'll get new episodes of Worth Noting, a kid's podcast about current events, hosted by me. Something for you and the young people in your life to enjoy together. Enjoy this episode, and I hope you'll check out Worth Noting and other podcasts from a kid's company about... That's a really beautiful thing. Thank you. I mean, that's the whole reason I wrote this book was for that, basically, was to give queer children validation and say, you're not broken. You're not messed up. It's perfectly normal. And I think I kind of spoiled what my answer to your last question. That's okay. (laughs) We're going to get back there again. And I, I kind of have a feeling, Eric, that the conversation is probably going to revolve around this this conversation of exactly what you're saying that you're not wrong you're not broken you're not spoiled can you remember your first crush maybe in late elementary school or early middle school do you remember what your crush looked like how seeing your crush made you feel This is the Children's Book Podcast, episode number 441. I'm your host, Matthew Winner, and Alan Cole, the protagonist of Eric Bell's debut middle grade novel, Alan Cole is Not a Coward, Alan Cole has a crush. An all-consuming, world-upending crush. Alan Cole has a crush on Connor Garcia. No one can know, only his brother does know. And his brother threatens to out Alan unless Alan can beat him in a scavenger hunt of sorts that Alan is doomed to lose. Before we get started, please listen to a short message from our sponsors who helped to make today's episode possible. The Children's Book Podcast is sponsored by Gallery Nucleus, an art gallery and bookstore where you can find prints, books, and other gifts from some of your favorite children's book illustrators like John Clausen, Christian Robinson, and more. From May 26th through June 10th, Caldecott-winning author and illustrator Dan Santat will have new original work on display. Can't make it to the show? Just go to gallerynucleus.com to view and purchase the work. Gallery Nucleus is offering listeners 15% off your next purchase by entering in the promo code WONDER18. Visit gallerynucleus.com to discover more or click on the Gallery Nucleus banner at matthewcwinner.com podcast. The Children's Book Podcast is sponsored by Storyteller Academy. Learn the art of storytelling from published authors, illustrators, and editors at Storyteller Academy. The team behind Storyteller Academy share our mission is to help aspiring storytellers learn the craft of storytelling by sharing our creative process intimately. We believe everyone has a story to tell. 
Listeners of the Children's Book Podcast are invited to a free mini-class. Enroll today at www.storytelleracademy.com wonder. Or click on the Storyteller Academy banner at matthewcwinner.com podcast. And now please welcome my guest, Eric Bell, and his middle grade novel, Alan Cole is Not a Coward. Welcome to the podcast, Eric Bell. I'm glad I get to talk to you. Welcome. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> I would say it's so nice to put a voice to a name, but then I realized we've been talking for like 15 minutes already, so I already have the voice. But now officially on record, it's nice to put a voice to a name, Eric. Yes, likewise, yes. Well, I've heard your voice before, having listened to your show, but <laughs> you haven't heard mine. But we've been in conversation a lot, and I have to say, and I'm going to just sort of out myself as a reader on this podcast. I, for anyone that knows me, I'm a notoriously slow reader. It takes me forever to read a book. And I know that I've said this probably on recording before, just because I also know from my college professor, uh, the head of our, our, our English major program, the head of our English program, Kathy Mangan, saying about how I'm just a, a reader that reads every word, that I am slower, but I read every word. And so every word counts. So when I you know, have middle grade books that I want to read and they're not available as an audio format. It's going to take me a little bit of time to read them, but I read every word. And I know you know, because you've been so kind as I've kept telling you, I'm reading your book and I'm loving it so much, but I just need more time. (laughs) You've been so, you've given me so much grace as a slow reader, but one again, that reads every word. And so Eric, I just want to tell you, thank you. Not only for that time, but thank you for every word of your book. I really, really enjoyed it. You're very kind. I'm, I'm really glad you enjoyed it so much. Well, so before we go much further, why don't I uh, give you a chance to introduce yourself to those people listening? Yeah, sure. So I'm Eric Bell. Um, I'm the author of Alan Cole is Not a Coward, which is a book that came out last September through Catherine Teagan Books at HarperCollins. And it's a story of 12-year-old Alan Cole who has a really big crush on another boy in his class. And his older brother, Nathan, who's a huge bully to him, finds out that he likes boys and essentially blackmails him into playing a a game of escalating tasks, is one way to put it, where they each have a list of things they have to do, and whoever gets the most done by the deadline wins the game. And Nathan says to Alan that if Nathan wins and Alan loses... Nathan will out Alan to the whole school. So Alan pretty much has to has to basically um, learn to stand up for himself and to tell Nathan, enough is enough. You've put me through this so many times. And the book, if the title doesn't give it away, is a story about courage and resiliency and accepting yourself for who you really are. Yeah. It's been out since September. Have you had a chance to, I assume you have had uh, a number of chances to be in front of children, to be talking about this book. What's that been like for you to be in front of some kids? Um, There have been a couple um, online um, video chats with Ooh, children. And that's cool. That's been, that's been a lot of fun. Usually the kids have submitted questions to me beforehand and what i've done is i've kind of prepared responses and then typically i think with one classroom we went to a more freeform q a where the kids could get up and ask me questions and i would answer them and that was a lot of fun it was really great to see uh to really interact with the kids in a meaningful way 
Um, they really, I could tell they really wanted to be there to meet an author. A lot of them had actually read at least part of my book, so they came prepared and enthusiastic. So that was really great. I'd love to do more uh, school visits in in the uh, in the near future. I wish for many school visits for you. This was a book, as I was saying uh, to you earlier, that that um, you know there are books that we read that that are touching, and there are books that we read that are enjoyable and are funny. Uh, and your book is both of those things, but there are also books that that can open worlds for readers. And and Alan Cole is not a coward. To me, is a book that opens worlds for readers. I I have never read a novel, let alone a middle grade novel, that I feel like so so openly embraces the voice of a child, of a boy, who has such a in such a such an emphatic crush on another boy and just is lovesick and doesn't quite know what to do. And the way that... I don't know. I don't quite know how I'm trying to to wrap my brain around it, Eric, but the way that it's just so matter-of-fact and so so pure is something I really uh, enjoyed in this book. Thank you. Yeah. It um, It was very important to me that I make it very clear very early on that Alan has a big crush on Connor is the boy's name. And, um, wait, what's the name? Wait, Connor. No, 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 no. What remind me of the name that, that Alan makes up for Connor. Do you remember the name that, Oh, what's the name that he tells Nate? Oh, uh, Vic Valentino. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. He gives, he gives Nathan a fake name when Nathan demands to know, uh, the boy he has a crush on. That's right. And all all Nathan knows is that he is gay. He was looking up what to do if you are gay online. Um, kind of like really like overt search history that would give it away to yes. Nathan. And But Nathan doesn't know the object of his affection. And it's actually one of the crafty things that Alan does early on to stem the, stem the tide, basically, of abuse from his brother. Yes. Um, but one of the things that was really important for me to do was to establish from early on, very, the very first chapter, that Alan feels this way about another boy. And I really wanted to make that apparent from the outset because I wanted to show that it's something that happens. It's something that kids experience. And I didn't want to sort of hide it later on in the story and have it come up later. I mean, there are definitely stories where it wouldn't be as big of a deal, but Alan's crush on Connor is... Uh, is a really big thematic point in the story. And I really wanted to make it um, very apparent from the get-go that it was important. Can I, can I read that passage to you? Because sure. on page seven was the very first dog ear that I put on this book. And I, this is my book. This is my copy. So I get to put dog ears in it. My friend, Mel, <laughs> we, she teases me all the time about how can you do, how can you do that for your books? But I always say it's because it's, it's because of words. It's because there are these words that resonate and this, I'm, I'm just going to read it. I'm just going to read it. Page seven. Here we go. <laughs> Connor Garcia 
would never even look over at the unstable table. He'd never come over here with his big smile and sit with somebody like me and act like it isn't weird that somebody like me would ever want to ask somebody like him to the movies or something. Sure, he likes me, but he doesn't like me. It's bad enough that being you-know-what is treated like the middle school version of the bubonic plague, but... Somehow, news of me having a you-know-what on Connor would spread like lice in a kindergarten class, and soon everyone would be, I don't think I have to tell you what, and the universe would basically explode. Oh, what love? What love? <laughs> oh my god. There's so much more. I've. There's so much more. I'm just going to be reading to you all night long. And be like, That's can fine. you believe, Eric, can you believe that you said this thing too? Can you believe that you wrote this thing too? There were so many dog ears. I, I can remember, Eric, I can remember being, I think we all can remember. What am I saying? We all can remember being young and in love and when our whole body loves someone, when it's all we can think of, when we adore them, when we think there's just, it, it's impossible that they even... Not only that they could love me back, but they could even know who I am. Mm-hmm. And yet we feel so deeply that, but yet I know who they are in and out, and I love them in and out. That, I, that's the word I'd keep coming back to. I want to say how naive it is, but really it just, to me, just feels so pure, so innocent and pure. Mm. And you write from there. So let me... Let me call out what I I know you've already shared because uh, through writing blog posts, through doing guest posts, through doing things like that. But um, Eric, where, how best to ask this, where did the inspiration for this story come from for you? Where did the need to tell Alan's story come from, from for you? Um, I think the biggest thing that I really wanted to convey with this story is kind of a message to young queer readers to tell them you're not messed up you're not alone you don't have to hurt and keep this dark terrible secret there's nothing wrong with you basically like when i was growing up gay and i mentioned this on the post i made for you on your website i thought being gay was the worst thing in the world all i knew was that my classmates made fun of it all the time. You, oh, that's so gay, you know, all these other derogatory terms. I played into that because I I thought, you know, there's no way that I, I ever want to be like that. And, you know, sometimes I wonder if I maybe would have grown up a little more well-adjusted had I been more comfortable with who I was. And when I got into college, that's when I, I came out and I, I had my first boyfriend and I started accepting uh, who I was more fully, but I know that there are like there are lots of people who are well. I met a an a sixty a man in his sixties, maybe even his seventies once, who told me that he is not out to anyone but close family. And wow. I was like, man, that's that's incredible. Like to to reach that point in your life where you know who you are, but you still feel like you can't come clean about it is just it was it was really incredible to me and i know that on the flip side there are there are kids 
you know, younger than 10 in elementary school that are realizing their feelings and their sexuality and they're being open about it. And that's sort of the paradigm shift that we're moving towards. And I definitely want to, I wanted to write this book, uh, you know, for those kids and for the kids who need the extra boost and also for kids who maybe aren't in that situation, but might need a little, a little empathy and might be able to grow as people from reading about a kid who has a different experience from them. I, when I was in college, I went to kind of a small town college and kind of a rural area. And there were people I knew who told me they had never met a gay person before they met me. And their, their image of a gay person was stereotypical and borderline offensive. And I, here I was just, just a quote unquote regular guy who was just like them. And it was, it was really mind mind bending for them, mind blowing. And I really just I, I would love if if this would normalize things, if my book would help normalize um, being queer and for for queer kids and non queer kids both. You know, you you play into that that other side, that other perspective with Nathan. I wanna get into this game, I wanna get into Cole versus Cole, but I, I one of the other uh, things I marked was when, um, so, so as you were, you described Cole versus Cole already, this game of, of lists and who, whomever accomplishes the most tasks, um, gets to choose the consequences for the, the, the loser. But he says going into it, um, uh, here, it says now Nathan continues pacing faster. If I win this game and let's face it, my track record is pretty good. You're out, if you know what I mean. I rush to my feet. You can't do that. Of course I can. He rests his hands on our shed. I will, if you lose, when you lose, then everyone will hate you instead instead of me. He rubs the back of his head. Hey, I don't care if you're gay or straight or whatever. It's not my problem. But I'll still tell the world if it makes them all hate you. And, um... Well, no, let me just read one more, because... Because Cole here, there's some strength there in him, or the, in Alan, there's some strength there. I almost say, it goes on, I almost say, they wouldn't all hate me. Zach and Madison probably wouldn't, just because they don't have anyone else to talk to. But I can't picture anyone else who wouldn't, even Connor. But there's got to be something else you want, I say. Something else I can give up if you win. But, uh, you know, Nathan just says, oh, already trying to weasel your way out of it. Um, that that connection to well really to get into it that connection to shame to um not feeling like it's okay to be who you are uh and you know that universality of it whether that means that you're gay or straight whether that means that your skin color is different from someone else or your religion or anything like that um shame is a real shame is a real powerful influencer and shaper of children's lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm glad that uh, that also so upfront in this book that you deal with that, not only in Nathan's relationship to Alan, but especially in their father in particular, their father's relationship to the boys. It was, it was hard, man. Dad in this book. Whew. That's a hard. Yeah, he's in this book. he's brutal. He's pretty. Uh, he's pretty intense. Were you drawing 
reference for um for any of these characters from your own childhood did what how how accepting was your family or or is your family still perhaps um i get asked that a lot because this family is so horrible right um i'm hoping that it's just the opposite that you were like well let's just make this family awful because it'll make it easier for alan to rise above Yes, that is exactly why I made Good. the family horrible. Good. My family, I, I'm, I'm an only child, first of all. I don't have any siblings. I have a half-sister, and, you know, she's never bullied me horribly um, like Nathan does. <laughs> she's also half my age, so there's that, too. Um, <laughs> but, you know, my, my, my family was very accepting when I came out. Um, They're very encouraging of me and supportive, and I felt very fortunate to have that experience. I know not a lot of... Um, people who come out have a positive experience with their families, but no, um, Alan's family is essentially, uh, one big obstacle for Alan to overcome. And they stem from my desire to give him lots of challenging obstacles. Like, you know, it's one thing to have a bully at school who's horrible. It's another thing altogether to have a bully who lives down the hall from you who can essentially torment you at any given moment throughout the day and psychologically knows all your weak points. And that's really what I was going for with uh, Nathan specifically. And I tried to make him uh, a bit more than just an antagonist. Um, I don't know if I quite succeeded, um, but I definitely tried to make him more human than just a a nasty machine that dispenses nasty to people. No, but you know what I see is I see almost like this little experiment. So if we have a dad that's this controlling and a mom that's sort of this repressed by, by this figure in the household that like says these awful lines, like uh, make sure you wear that dress or make sure you wear that nice dress. Make sure. Did you get it back from the cleaner? Like he just talks in ways like, there's no way to please this man. You're going to disappoint him left and right. Mm-hmm. But then to take to take two boys as as quite frankly a man with children, um, as all of our children are sort of little social experiments of how we parent and who we are. You show two different paths that that their lives could take. I feel. I mean, I felt I felt a lot of hurt for Nathan because I just felt like. It must be awful for him to to feel that his dad, you know, cares about him to that length um, to treat him that way, um, mm-hmm. and then not know what to do with it. I think often, so I, I teach in a school where I think a lot of our students have a really difficult time with expressing love to other adults or children in their life with trusting other adults in their life with, I don't know. I think, I think kids carry a lot and, um, it's not surprising that the things they carry directly stem from how best to say it other than directly stem from the weights that are put on their shoulders before they even come to us. And so you've got these poor boys that, are going through what they're going through, and who best then for Nate to, for Nathan to feel better about himself than to take it out on Alan? But when you when you get this list that that um, our whole book revolves around, which I want to just make sure I, I point out, 
Um, because Alan so cleverly says to Cole, you know, Cole, or says to Cole, I keep doing the last name. Alan so cleverly does to Nathan, um, when Nathan says, well, you can make up a list for me. Alan says, well, then you just do the exact list that I'm doing. The list includes one, become the most well-known kid in school, which again, as we said about Alan, he's such a quiet, reserved kid. Uh, Two, pass the swim test. Three, make someone cry. Four, retrieve a hidden piece of paper from Nathan. Five, get your first kiss. Six, stand or give up your most prized possession. Seven, stand up to dad. Nathan made this list. Well, I mean, you made this list. But Nathan made made this list. The way I read it was, I think, really to make it almost an impossible list. Almost even that one thing would be impossible, let alone seven, right? There's no way you're going to accomplish this. And we know that because you've given Nathan a history of of making lists that there was just no way for Alan to ever pass. And now this is the ultimate list. And so the fact that you included Stand Up to Dad, not only to me was showing me how difficult it must be for Alan to stand up to dad, but I think it also showed something of the list maker that for Nathan, he made that the hardest task and that it has to speak something to him that that must be one of his greatest fears is to be in a situation where he has to stand up to his father that he just, it's unfathomable. Yeah. I mean, Nathan, um, at one point in the chapter, when he assigns this list, he says, the tasks are all technically doable. Um, doable. Like he thinks it's not totally outside the realm of possibility that maybe Alan could theoretically make someone cry or whatever, but they're designed to just maximize his discomfort and pain. Like he specifically chooses these seven tasks as things that Alan could do them if he wasn't, you know, a total wuss and a total um, just a, incompetent idiots but he is an incompetent idiot in nathan's eyes so there's so he won't get them done so when 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 nate when alan does i won't really i won't spoil it but when alan does um like the first thing on the list well the second thing he does well he does one thing originally oh, we, and he does some oh, it's so good though eric it's so good <laughs> Can we spoil okay, a little? So, the book's been out since September, and I I know I've heard tell that you have a second one coming. Yes. So it's true. Can we can we share? I'm I, I'll be the I can spoil it. Okay. Okay. So um, go ahead. I, I have to. I have to. First, <laughs> the most prized possession being orange underwear. Come on, come on. Ah. Uh, anyway. Okay. So yes, people listening. Alan's most prized possession is like a bright pair of orange underwear that um, he carries. That's lucky for him. It's a lucky pair of underwear. And he gives them to a friend. Come on. That's amazing. But but then we get to the second challenge because, because you know, these friends are really close to him. So he gets a gift in return, which is a, that um, he gets a fortune. He gets to pick from a big stack, stack of fortunes. But these are the most... Wait. Do you get weird fortunes from fortune cookies? Does this no, come from this like is... actual? Okay, good. No, because the fact <laughs> this that this is for... too weird to actually. It has to be. I was like this. Okay, good. Even still, I'm processing. Going like, 
there aren't really fortunes like this, right? The fortune says, <laughs> the fortune says, <laughs> where do babies come from? <laughs> and that's it. That's the fortune. Um, did, okay. Okay. Maybe that's where I'll stop. That's where I'm going to stop. It, that leads us into, I will just say that question. I'm just going to link them. That question, where do babies come from? That fortune connects with Alan becoming the most popular kid in school. And I'll leave it at that. The mystery of how it all unfolds is glorious. But I'll leave it I'll leave it there. Let me back up and just start asking you about structure. Because there's some really cool things that you have going on in here that I just sort of want to know. Um, I want to know about where Where Do Babies Come From came from, if you know what I mean. Like, I want to know, like... How how do we get there? But maybe if I back up, I can just ask. So you want to write a story about, um, about a, a, a queer kid accepting, owning, loving himself and his queerness, and the way that he fits in the world. We start with that theme, perhaps. But where do you go from there? Where does it start to take shape? And when does this list, this game, when does that device come into the story? Um, so this is also back up a little bit. This is also a story about friendship. Um, because Alan, like you said, has two very good friends, uh, Zach and Madison. And I had actually written uh, two years prior to writing this book. I had written a separate book, with these three characters um, in which quirky, fun, lovable Zach was actually the main character. No way. And yeah, it was, this book book. Was, yeah, it was in third person. Um, and it was about Zach and Alan and Madison. Alan was also a very different character. Alan was very not at all meek or quiet. He was much more overtly sarcastic and snarky and uh, kind of like a deadpan uh, snarker to the rest of the group. Madison was was identical. He was he was exactly the same, um, but that book uh, didn't really work out. It wasn't very good. It was it was my first. It was like Training Wheels. It was my first novel I'd really seriously written. But I loved these characters, and so after I wrote a different novel um, with a totally separate cast, I came back to these three, and I said, you know, these 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 boys are the emotional core of my story i think i think that's probably why they get introduced before anything else before nathan before the family before connor it's alan at the unstable table talking with zach and madison and it's really a story about how um you know good friends and love and all the fun things like kindness and treating each other well and just loyalty because his friends are so loyal to Alan um, in in part because they really have nobody else to be loyal to. You know, they, they sit at this lunch table uh, because they, they know each other from class. They came from three different elementary schools. They're not really, not really friends at the start of the story, but they, they find each other and they, they kind of blossom under this umbrella of losers which they kind of wear as a badge of honor um but that's also a big component of the story is just the friendship that alan develops um when he kind of when he lets them in to his life and says you know it's okay maybe to have friends even though it might lead to some consequences these people care about me so i'm going to try and 
care about them too. Um, so that's part of it. There's also, um, as far as the game goes, is what you asked me about about 10 minutes right. ago. Right. <laughs> I love that the boys, I love that you've lived with these boys for a couple of years. That's cool. Even though Alan yeah. has changed, even though the dynamic may have changed a little bit, that's really neat that, that they've, that, that you've seen them as a strength for each other. And then we're able to sort of unpack their relationship and, uh, and almost in some way tell, yeah, their origin story, tell how they, what, what pulled them together, what sort of magnetic force make, made them so inseparable. Yeah. I mean, Zach was the first character I really came up with when I got seriously into writing that really stuck with me. And then I came up with Alan and Madison as kind of compliments to him. And ever since then, they've just been really like, like magnets to my brain. They were, they're very, very impactful on my career as a writer and, and my, my, my personhood. They've, they've had a really strong influence on me. Um, I admire them. I think, um, I think they're real role models, um, for, I hope children, as well as for me. Um, I think Alan is definitely a better person than I am. And I, I would definitely, I, I kind of strive to be more like him in my day to day life. Well, I love that, that, that Zach is the one that's always been there and that he's the one that, thinks it's the coolest thing to receive a pair of underwear and he also is the collector of the of the uh of the fortunes and he he's a he's a quirky and 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 really i mean there's a whole lot of love in that kid yeah Yeah. he is uh he's very he's incredibly good-hearted and kind and just he, I think that's the best way to describe it is he has a, so much love for everything and everything is just like a brand new, exciting thing. I actually, um, I have a Twitter account from Zach's perspective, um, <laughs> which uh, you can follow at, at Zach, Zach goose. Um, and it's just, it's a lot of fun to compose tweets in like his very excitable, very, uh, like very exuberant style um so it's a lot of fun if, if if you like the book you know you can check that out that's a lot of fun so so once you had this core of boys though um so the conflict then came i assume then with with not only alan having to reveal his sexuality or being put in the position so so nathan but um but just where where again did did it come to have such a repressive family to for him to to grow from um i think it really all came back to creating obstacles mm. for alan just like i said with nathan um he was the the primary antagonist and to make him so threatening would just be to have somebody who's constantly there who could turn on you at a moment's notice but also just to have nobody at home he could really turn to that Alan could really turn to was a big thing. Uh, Cause the dad is horrible. And then the mother is just very distant and detached. Um, she's, she's largely given up on the hope of happiness for her or her children. Um, and so Alan really has 
nobody but himself. And I really wanted to show that, at least in the beginning of the story, he's gotten used to the idea of only relying on his own wits to kind of stay afloat. And he's not used to having people in his corner. Like at one point, um, like Zach uh, ruffles his hair and Alan thinks to himself something like, which no one has ever done to me ever. Like no one has ever really, at least not it's in recent memory shown him affection. And that's, that's a really tough situation for him to be in. But that's really where I think the family stemmed from to really give him something like you said to to rise up over. Yeah. So um if you didn't have a a sibling that you could do these ridiculous games with, where did you come up with this awful awful game of Cole versus Cole? So cuz cuz I... Strike... I just want to say you strike me as a pretty nice person. <laughs> and, oh, and yet, so you think. So I think. you. Everyone watch out for Eric Bell at the upcoming conferences. Watch out. Yeah. <laughs> he might corner you and make you do seven things before the end of the conference. No, Have a um, right nasty things in your books. You, you've got a, a great amount of humor in the book, but I think that part of writing humor also is that balance of of having the opposing emotions so that we can have humor to break from it or to see in some cases how ridiculous situations are but that that game is not a nice game yeah so um the game pretty much came from so i'm going to peel back the curtain a little bit and talk about one of my shortcomings as a writer um which is that i tend to struggle with the stakes of the story um when i start writing a story i feel like the stakes are usually too small and I tend to have a hard time ratcheting it up. So when I had these characters and I had this kind of environment, I asked myself, what is the worst thing that could really happen to a closeted gay kid? And they came up with his, his, him being outed. And um, when the game basically arose from me wanting to do something that was kind of on the commercial side and just kind of, like less so with a quiet internal book. I, I wanted to write something that would really um, like get people like if they see it on the back of a book to be like, oh, this sounds interesting. Oh, yeah. And I thought that a fun way to do that would be to have this like this game of tasks. I had seen like games as kind of a fun structure in other books before, and I thought, you know, when you have a set list of things to complete by a deadline that automatically ratchets up the conflict and the tension. And the tasks themselves, I think I brainstormed them over a two-day period. I just kind of asked for or tried to think of um, specific things that I thought, like, like, like Nathan says, that Alan could theoretically do but um, would be unpleasant for him. So I kind of broke down Alan's personality with, you know, he's, he's so quiet and introverted, so becoming the most well-known kid in school would be a huge obstacle and a challenge for him. He's so kind, so making someone cry would be a big challenge for him, and so on and so on like that. I think I had some tasks that didn't make the cut. I wish I remembered what they were, because I'm sure they'd be fun to look back on. Um, but I also had to make sure they were feasible, like like finding the hidden piece of paper that Nathan hides. Um, that was a challenge, because I had to make all these rules in place that um, 
would prevent Nathan from like hiding it, um, you know, over a ceiling tile or like you know, things like that. It had to be had to be visible, had to be accessible within Alan's means. Um, so Nathan's piece of paper is in a broken vending machine. Right. That um, everyone can see. And everyone, everyone sort can of wonders see. what it's there for. So it actually, in that really interesting way, brings an awful lot of attention to to the game mm-hmm. or to, to whatever's going on with Alan. Yeah, and um, Alan spends a good bit of the story trying to figure out how he can possibly essentially break into this, this broken vending machine and retrieve the piece of paper. Um, and I try to foreshadow the solution in subtle ways um i'll be curious to see if people uh, pick up on it throughout the story but um yeah i mean the tasks were largely just based around things that knowing alan as i did at that time things that would really make him uncomfortable that would really stretch and push him in different directions so, but are you saying the when you're saying with the challenge of raising the stakes, had you written the story first and then upon like editing felt like, oh, I need to make it, I need to make the stakes higher or, or are you operating more from, uh, like, do you outline, do you, what does approaching a story look like for you is maybe what I'm trying to ask. Well, before Alan Cole, I written two other novels. One was about Alan and Zach and Madison and one was about a separate cast. And in both of those stories, the stakes were really weird. And one of them, I was they were way too uh, small. And then another one, the Zach and Madison and Allen story, they were just like really convoluted and unrealistic. And so I went into this third novel with the intent of, you know, I'd gotten feedback from critique partners and such saying, um, my stakes really needed work. So I said, I'm going to try and really tackle this in the perspective of, you know, what are some really solid external stakes I could really write about? Okay. Um, as far as writing a novel, what that looks like, I tend to start with uh, characters first and then just build the story around them. Um, there have been some other projects I've tried to start and then didn't really go anywhere. I started with the premise first. Mm. Um, so I'm open to trying other ideas if it's like a premise that I really can get behind. But um, usually I start with character first. Character is probably my strong suit when it comes to writing. Well, this had all of the heart and purpose of – made me think of uh, another recent book um... – Miss Bixby's Last Day by John mm. David Anderson. I I think I think that I'm a sucker also for like books about a group of boys on a mission. And when you have that timeline and when you have those tasks to complete and and that uh that set of circumstances that can sort of make a brotherhood, that can make a group of kids rely on one another, it's it's a really it's a really nice structure to follow. So I'm glad you landed on that for this story because it because not only does it propel the story forward, but it also draws us closer. As the characters are being drawn closer, it draws us closer as well. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, thank more you. Of more of the same, Eric. More of the same. <laughs> well, hopefully you'll like the sequel. Right. Um, where does that's it, uh where does the sequel take us from 
can you do a sequel spoiler free? Can you preview anything? What can you share? Eric, what can you share of us of the Ziggle? <laughs> I'll leave it uh, up to you. You can have the dirty work here. Um, well, the sequel takes place three weeks after the events of this book. And you get to see how all the cast has changed and grown in those three weeks. And you get to see how some of them haven't changed and grown. Um, that is if a close you... sequel. Three weeks. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, it goes in. So. The first book goes, I think, from mid-September to... It's only, like, the book only takes place over less than two weeks. Um, and so this book starts in, I believe, um, I believe October, and then goes into... Ends with winter break. Um, and there is uh, there is new challenges for Alan... I don't really want to say any more no. than that because that would spoil the ending of this book. Right. <laughs> uh, although if you, if, if you look up the description for this book, which is called Alan Cole doesn't dance. Um, it does kind of give away the ending to this book, which I guess is unavoidable given that it's a sequel. Um, so if you don't want to get spoiled, uh, read Alan Cole is not a coward first, and then you can look at the description for Alan Cole doesn't dance. Um, there are reviews coming out. Don't read them. Don't, <laughs> don't read Probably this. Don't yet. read this. That's so funny. Oh, yeah. Wonderful. Well, I, I love this book. I know you know that I love this book. Um, and I was really excited when I was telling my, my middle grade friends online that um, this is what I was reading. I was really obsessed with They A couple of them, uh, Jarrett Lerner, I think in particular, was just so excited yeah. to share that there's another one in the works. And I think that, that that kind of thing, that excitement of you liked this and the story continues. It doesn't always have to happen, but there, there, sometimes those opportunities are really neat to be able to continue the story. So I'm I'm glad, Eric, that you're getting that opportunity to continue. I um, Before I wrap up things with you, I'm realizing that our time has already flown past. Um yeah. Well, wow. I, yeah. Right. <laughs> I want to thank you. <laughs> I want to thank you for the time that you put aside with me and for sharing, for sharing all that you did. I, um, I, there's so many moments in this book that I see me, that I see me as a child, that I see me as an adult that, um, caused me to love Alan in ways that, um, I don't think I've loved another character before. I just really felt for this kid and really saw him and I thought it was really beautiful. And I wanted to share with you something that I was kind of leafing through the pages as we were talking here. I think I found it. But but sort of a um, after achieving that objective of becoming the most popular kid in the, the school, you give Alan a really, really nice line. And I, in case it wasn't clear before when I was reading this, for those that haven't read this book, you know, Alan narrates this story. So we're hearing this book from his perspective. Um... And so that means we get to hear where he struggles, but it also means we get to hear where he might be breaking through of some of those emotions. And in the end of, I don't know, maybe halfway through the story, after this thing, he says, sometimes when it seems like the whole world is against you, something unexpected, something good can happen. Maybe it's those moments that make everything else seem less bad. Maybe it's those moments that make you smile. And, um, I just, I think that, you know, I, I think that I know how, how much of yourself you put into this story and how much of those readers 
you were really looking after as you wrote this story, Eric. And so because of that, I just, I just, I just want to thank you. Cause I know, I know that there was a lot of love that not only was poured into this, but then through Alan and through Zach and through Madison, you pour back out to the reader. And that takes a lot as a writer to not only to, to get that out of your head, but also to keep it, to maintain it through edits, through the, the time, the months and the years that you spend with these children. So thank you for protecting those boys and protecting this story and allowing it to be what it is uh, that's shared with us through Alan Cole is not a coward. Thank you very much. That's incredibly kind of you to say. I'm glad. I'm glad that you reached out to me, Eric. I'm glad you shared your story with me. You know, I books come to me in all different ways, from me going to the library and finding it, to uh, a friend reaching out over Twitter, to a publicist sending it, to um, to something like like you, where I have another author or illustrator that sees me and sees what I'm doing and finds the strength in him or herself to share their work with me. And I, I guess I just want to call out that that when you did that, it meant a lot to me. Um, and I'm really glad to have had the chance to get to know the person behind this book that, that, that I loved so much. So thanks, Eric. Yeah. I mean, you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm happy that this, uh, that you, that you took to the book so much and that you were kind enough to have me on your show. And, you know, this is, this really means a lot. So thank you. Well, thank you. Uh, For all the things that I can't find words for, I'm just going to turn and leave you the chance to have the words. Um, Eric, I'll see a library full of children tomorrow morning. Is there a message I can give to them from you? Yeah. um, Tell those kids that you matter. Your voices matter. Your words matter. Your worlds matter. This is Mariana Llanos, author of the books Tristan Wolf and Poesia Alada, among others. The Children's Book Podcast is recorded and produced by Matthew Winner in his library studio in Ellicott City, Maryland. You can subscribe to the podcast and access the archive of over 400 episodes at matthewcwinner.com podcast. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear Care of the Free Music Archive. All views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the individuals and do not reflect ideas or viewpoints of the publishers of the books referenced. Want to help out the show? Writing a review on iTunes or sharing the podcast with friends through Facebook, Twitter, word of mouth, or any other means helps reach more listeners, which leads to more content and more amazing guests. And that's a very good thing indeed. We know you value what you put in front of your kids, especially when it comes to screens and podcasts. That's why we're excited to share a new podcast from our friends at Sleepiest, creating bedtime stories to help your kids fall asleep fast. Hello, Abby here. If you've got children and find bedtimes a struggle, I'd like to tell you about Coco Sleep, a children's story podcast designed to make bedtime a dream. Coco Sleep turns a chaotic bedtime into cozy bonding time. 
The stories are delivered in a pace that gently slows. Rumour has it that no one's ever heard an ending. So search Coco Sleep on your favourite podcast app and let's make bedtime a dream. That's K-O-K-O Sleep and I'll see you there.